From the National Project on Race and Capitalism, welcome to Season 3 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories, and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. So just in briefly introducing um, Professor Michael Dawson is the John McCarthy Professor of, of Political Science at the University of Chicago. Professor Nancy Fraser is the Harry and Louise Loeb Professor of Philosophy and Politics at the New School for Social Research. I'm Myra Clata, I'm a PhD student here in the Politics Department. Michael Dawson and Nancy Fraser over the last couple of years have featured a stimulating political exchange in academia over the constitutive role of racism in capitalist society. Professor Fraser's perspective of capitalism as an institutionalized social order articulated with Professor Dawson's conceptualization of a new liberal racial order refutes any form of economicism that reduces this contemporary social-political-economic arrangement to a mere system of commodity production and exchange. For both authors, any serious attempt to understand the persistent inequalities and forms of oppression so neatly delineated within racial, class-based, and gender lines in society today has to go further beyond the critique of exploitation to address the constitution of capitalism and its persistence not only in association with primitive accumulation and surplus appropriation. The result, synthesis, is a particularly promising framework to theorize the structural entwinement of race and capitalism. And to start our discussion, I want to ask them first, the first questions will be to address the conceptual and historical relations between race and capitalism. And then we're going to move to grapple with the politics of this understanding, mainly in the US, but also in the rest of the world, the politics of it, particularly in Europe and Latin America. So first, the question for both Professor Fraser and Professor Dawson, why the topic of race and capitalism and why now? There's been this great tradition in the political study of race. We have Dubois, Eric Williams, James Bob, Angela Davis, Robinson, Cornel West, I mean, just to name a few. But black Marxism or any other attempt to study the mutually constitutive entwinement of race and capitalism has been for a long time marginalized in detriment to post-structuralist approaches, claims of representation, or even liberal, now neoliberal, attitudes towards race. So what is the relevance now of this inquiry? I think there are several reasons that now is the time. One, on intellectually, I think the republishing of black Marxism early last decade was, a, was critical, particularly with Robin Kelly's intervention and forward, where he's trying to situate Cedric Robinson's work in a broader context of black radical thinking and black radical activism. A few years later, we also see in parallel the new slavery studies. Walter Johnson, Edward Baptist, Swin Beckert, and many others talk, and they actually use the phrase racial capitalism, although we might ask for a little bit more theoretical grounding within those works. It's begun to be reintroduced again actively in the historical profession that there's actually a lot of debate among historians between those doing new histories of capitalism on one hand and those studying slavery and racial capitalism on the other. 
Peter Hudson's important intervention, I think, also helped push the debate forward in the Boston Review, where he critiqued that literature and tried to connect it to the works that were just mentioned, those of Eric Williams, those of W. E. Du Bois, and those of, among others, of C.L.R. James as well. And his work, in fact, tries to expand it beyond the U.S., in fact, his new work beyond the Western Hemisphere, and to think about how are those in the Caribbean, how are those in South Africa, think about the nexus of race and class. And I think also in this final period, whether we're thinking about the work in the 1990s of feminist scholars, such as McClintock, are trying to theorize the articulation of patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism, or work today that attempts the same thing. We're also hearing from young activists in the movement for black lives and BYP 100. They're having workshops on racial capitalism. How do you understand the articulation and intersection between homophobia, patriarchy, capitalism, and ongoing black oppression? How do we understand the attacks on black bodies that are visible and continuing at the same time you're trying to understand economic marginalization, deprivation, and expropriation that continue within black communities? It's often in the same place. We're always in the same place, but one example would be Ferguson, where in the Department of Justice under Obama said the criminal justice system was being used to extract and expropriate money out of black, poor black communities, and the police were partly responsible for suppressing dissent and policing those boundaries. So those are some of the reasons, both from the standpoint of activism, but also from the standpoint of scholarship, that there's been a swell in interest in these questions. That's obviously very relevant, and I think that the, the question that Myra poses is, is well posed. I mean, I do think it's kind of remarkable. I've seen in the course of my lifetime the sort of uh, marginalization of black Marxism and of the whole problematic of trying to theorize and understand the nexus of capitalism and racism. That was when I was a young student and activist, you know, very much the sort of front and center. And like all forms of Marxism and the whole problematic of capitalism, it fell off the radar screen. And there was a lot of sophisticated work on racism in the liberal tradition and in the post-structuralist tradition, but it did not try to deal with the problematic of capitalism and racial capitalism. I mean, my answer then, why now, is just very simple. Capitalism has come to seem deeply problematic, deeply crisis-ridden, and everybody is interested in the problem of capitalism again. It's not something that can just be passed over in silence. And so it makes perfect sense for people who have been working in the traditions of critical race theory from whatever angle to return to this black Marxist tradition, to reread all these great thinkers that you named, and to try to figure out what in that tradition remains viable and important, where things need to be revised, how to mobilize the resources, the conceptual resources of that tradition to understand the present. So my simple answer is that nobody can ignore capitalism anymore, and that includes critical race theorists and anti-racist activists. I would just add that I think one, we have to be very clear about that the black Marxist, the black radical tradition was pushed out of the academy and often by people within black studies itself as 
partly due to foundation funding, partly due to an embrace of neoliberalism by a wide range of black elites. So just as that tradition started in factories, started in communities, and then came into the academy during the late 60s and early 70s, I think once again, the actual problems people have in the world is one reason that scholars are returning to it. And so within this reemergency of capitalism in academia and, and social struggles, how do you understand the nexus of race and capitalism in history? Is it contingent or is there any structural articulation that could point to a non-contingency? Um, and maybe even specifically in the US, how can this nexus be historically understood? The first thing that I would say is that even a cursory look historically will tell you that capitalism has always been entangled with racial oppression, whether we're talking about slavery, whether we're talking about Jim Crow, whether we're talking about you know, subprime mass incarceration, neoliberal capitalism. This has never been absent. And so, of course, that raises the question, why? Is it just you know, a contingent thing? And if so, why so constant? So I think there's enough reason to try to look for a structural connection. And my own answer in the end is somewhat complex, but let me start by saying that I believe that the structural connection has to do with the idea that exploitation of free labor in the sense that Marx theorized it, which is usually seen by Marxists as, you know, the central defining mechanism of capital accumulation, the thing that makes the system go. Such, I've called it the kind of front story of capitalism. That front story problematic has always relied on a varieties of backstories in which capital does not pay for the reproduction costs of input that it uses. With respect to free wage labor, supposedly anyway, capitalism pays for the reproduction costs. The labor it uses. But it doesn't pay the ecological reproduction costs of many of the natural input that it uses. It doesn't pay the reproduction costs of the unwaged labor of social reproduction, often labor of women that it uses. And important here, it does not pay the reproduction costs of a whole mass of expropriated coerced, unfree labor, and of the resources, the land, the animals, the minerals, et cetera, et cetera, that it confiscates from those peoples. So many, you know, many thinkers have tried to theorize this under the heading primitive accumulation, right? And famously, Marx wrote about that as the sort of instigating, right, jumpstart of capitalism. But there's been lots of very persuasive work that shows that it's not just something at the beginning, but that there's an ongoing reliance on unfree, unwaged, dependent, subjugated labor, and on the various other inputs and resources stolen from the possessors. 
I've called that, and I'm not the only one, lots of people have called it expropriation. And so I think about this problem of two X's, exploitation and expropriation, and the question of how they relate. My central argument, and this is, would require much more nuance, but I want Michael to get in on this. I'm gonna keep it short. My central idea is that expropriation is, is always a hidden condition of possibility for exploitation, and that means that unfree coerced, subjugated, class of unfree coerced, subjugated people is a necessary condition for the freedom of free wage labor. And my view is that race is the mark of that division between the subjugated, unfree, expropriated peoples on whom capital relies and the free. We should always put free in quotation marks. Or else it was a double freedom, right? But anyway, distinction between the free, exploited, waged workers. I think this is a division that can be thought of in several different registers. And if you want to talk in these terms, it's a division within the working class, but a very structurally grounded one. And it's a status div division, free versus unfree, mark versus unmarked, et cetera. So that, for me, that's a, a structural argument for the non-accidental aspect of the entanglement of racism and capitalism. I don't think they're two separate systems. I think this is one system, and it works in this complex way. But as I think we'll probably say a little more about later, the relation between these two X's, exploitation and expropriation, and between the peoples who are marked racially, as belonging to one or another of those categories, that relationship is historically variable. It's not given once and for all. And I think if we think about the shifts in the way the two X's relate, we begin to be able to get an interesting picture of the history of capitalist development. So I think it is structural, just to start in short answer. Add a few things to that. One, I know this is in my work, this is in Nancy's work, and a lot of other colleagues' work, is that starting with Marx talks about the, the central role that the state plays in both the process of primitive, what he calls primitive accumulation, which, as Nancy suggests, a lot of us think of ongoing accumulation that doesn't have an endpoint, is the role of the state and the violent state. But the state, I think, is also useful to think about it as a racial state. The state is making the markers, is providing the boundaries between what is, in the level of political economy, exp those who are exploited and those who are expropriated, but illogically between lesser humans and, and superior humans, between civilized and uncivilized, between second-class citizens, first-class citizens, it's changed over time, and it varies over time and place. But that illogical uh, boundaries that are set very, very early with the emergence of capitalism and colonialism and imperialism, remain with us today. And that is part of the reason someone like Du Bois in Black Reconstruction talks about, in the US context, the development of true proletariats with different statuses, even if they're both are exploited or super exploited in the case of black and brown workers, as many of the authors that Myra initially cited talk about, are all part of a seg racially segmented working class. Owner Inche has a new book on what he calls colonialism and the racial state. And so the racial state is not just a state in terms of the metropole, but it's also a colonial state from the, pretty much from the beginning. 
So that's, I think, the role of the racial state is necessary to theorize. I think, and with respect to the U.S., which was the last part of the question, we should think about three processes being very central from the beginning. One is that of conquest, the Southwest, Oceania, the former Spanish colonies, the process of dispossession, genocide, in which indigenous people were displaced off their land, often killed, and their land was therefore free of anybody in the Lockean sense and therefore open to colonization, and then the enslavement of Africans and the importance that the enslavement of Africans played for both the UK and the US in building up both their industrial and financial institutions and infrastructure that stay with us today. What are the implications of the debates we're having here now in this theoretical framework that's been built? What are the implications of it to the politics of race in the US today? I mean, we are faced with the rise of Trumpism, the alt-right. We see a strong pushback against Black Lives Matter. We hear accusations of divisionism within the left. And in this specific US political context, what does a resistance from an anti-racism perspective look like? I think the questions we're talking about today are far more than theoretical. They're actually extraordinarily central to the debates being held by people trying to organize against police brutality, trying to organize against subprime dispossession and expropriation of property and the like. There's a number of theorists who have, not theorists, theorists and activists who will make the claim, as one of my colleagues, Adolph Reed Jr., has made, that racial uh, capitalism is a nonsensical um, sub subject to talk about. There's only capitalism. There's no such thing as racial capitalism. And that it's divides the working class to, to fight against the murder of black people by the police. That's a very old and honored line of thinking within the left. It goes back to the Socialist Party and others who say we can't take up the fight against lynching because that would divide the working class. So thinking about the, the nexus between capitalism and white supremacy is absolutely critical in terms of thinking about what are the motive forces? What are the, what are the types of struggles likely to undermine various types of forms of domination on one hand? Who are the allies and who are, who are like to uh, play leading roles? There are also those other types of activists, sometimes some with the label, go by the label Afro-pessimists, say that the political economy is not that critical and that the key, key motivating factor in modern history is anti-blackness. And actually, and some of them actually reject the idea of using the term white supremacy. So I, these are debates that activists are, are, are literally debating as we speak in London, in Los Angeles, in Joburg, in Cape Town, about how to think about the critical nexus between capitalism, between white supremacy, and for some activists, certainly more than when me and Nancy were active, <laughs> were active also think about patriarchy and heteronormativity as axes that also that have to be theorized on the ground in, in the context of specific struggles. We're going to see it in electoral. Do we concentrate on trying to win over the white working class? Do we try to, who do we, at every level of struggle, who are the likely main forces to, to fight against domination and oppression of various types? Maybe the best way for me to try to approach this question is to go back to this exploitation expropriation structure and say what I think it looks like today. I mean, the sort of my underlying assumption is that we are living through a severe crisis of capital today, not just an economic crisis or a financial crisis, but it is a political crisis of hegemony, a crisis of social reproduction, and obviously a very severe ecological. I think this is 
all, all these dimensions are aspects of a crisis of capitalism. And I think any question about what the politics and, and what an emancipatory politics of our time can be or should be has to be situated in relation to a diagnosis that takes very seriously this idea of a multidimensional general crisis of the social order. And we don't know whether its resolution might be a different form of capitalism or a form of post-capitalism or some kind of horrible barbarism. Uh, all of that remains to be seen. But I do think that's the sort of framing context for the question the serious stakes are. Now, if we take this schema that capitalism always involves an entwinement, an internal calibration of operations of exploitation and expropriation. What does that structure look like today? Well, I said a few minutes ago that throughout most of capitalism's history, there were never perfectly clear, but more or less clear-cut divisions between who is expropriated and who is exploited who is a, a dependent, stigmatized, racialized other, and who is a free worker and a citizen. And that's essentially the color line. I think today things are murkier. I think we've got the emergence of hybrid. Or if you just think of that you know, famous white working class, with the decimation of trade unions, deindustrialization, the rise of low-wage precarious service work, replacing unionized industrial labor, and so on, more and more of the white working class is not being paid enough to cover the costs of their reproduction. They're all in debt. Their children are have to live at home until they're 40 years old and are not going to have better lives than their parents, and so on. So even though they are still exploited in wage labor, their situation is overlaid with an expropriative dimension. Remember that my definition, or at least part of my definition of expropriation, is that you're not paid the full reproduction costs of your input capital accumulation. On the other hand, as we know with the relocation of manufacturing to the global south, formerly colonized and expropriated peoples are indeed doing wage work, are exploited. And for a long time, people of color in the metropole, including in the United States, have been doing wage work. They've been paid less than white workers, and their wage work has also been overlaid with an expropriative dimension. More and more, in other words, everybody is, or not everybody, lot, many, many more people than ever before are both expropriated and exploited. And that, in a sense, is sort of presents a kind of challenge or a, it causes something in a racial order to be very out of whack. If we don't any longer have this clear-cut hierarchy, and of course, it goes without saying that with decolonization in the global south, people who used to be colonized subjects are now citizens, and with the end of Jim Crow, or the same is true within the metropole, even despite the entrenchment of voting rights and other fundamental citizenship rights here. But anyway, what I'm trying to describe is a world in which 
racial ordering is being sort of shaken, turned a little upside down at the same time that there's tremendous kind of parity in people's situation. This is a very explosive combination, in my opinion, and it, it gives rise as more and more people, wherever located, reject the mainstream center-left and center-right political parties are looking for or out-of-the-box political right, uh, options, um, you can see how, as you mentioned, Trumpism, alt-right, and so on, you can see that comes in at one side, various left populisms, uh, Sanders and so on. The other side, the rise of new forms of young, anti-racist militant movements and organizations. This is a very, it's a time, I think, where everything is really up for grams. Most people, I think, find this a very frightening negative time. People use the word fascism and so on. I think it's also a time of real opportunity. I don't want to go on any longer, but that's a start. I think there's one of the aspects of the racial order that we shouldn't lose sight of, though, is, is the state again. Because one thing that the state is doing is keeping the old racial order very much in place. And it's one of the things that we've seen, I think, is the illogical resilience of racist ideology and the very, in this time of crisis and increasing precarity for most people, what people often turn to, and I'm talking about white Americans, some white Americans specifically, is the, is the racial order, their racial status as being superior to the marked other. So there's just, a, you know, every week we read about incidents of people being followed. You don't belong here. I live here. You, you shouldn't live here. Why are you on this street? Why are you driving this car? People getting shot down in the street by neighbors, by their, by their neighbors. So one of the things we see is both the state and civil society trying to re-inscribe these racial hierarchies of the past. I was talking to some folks at Cornell a couple of days ago. They talk about one of the main social bases for Brexit were pensioners who were actually somewhat well off, but wanted to go back to a world where, that they recognized where their privilege was clear and solid. So I think we have to think about both the ideological apparatuses that are really sort of rationing up, the highlighting the racial order and racial status as a way to preserve right support for the right and even ask the deal of we're going to keep your lives pretty good, that's falling apart for almost everybody, regardless of racial status. And moving beyond the U.S., how do you see the politics of race elsewhere? This is a very potent framework of analysis, and in, in it, what calls your attention and the global radar? I mean, I'm from Brazil, that's all I can talk, I can think about right now, we are 10 days from the elections, but how do you see the politics of race globally? Well. I mean, it's just it's a time of enormous turbulence, and we are seeing in many, many places form of expressions of overt racial animus and, and racism in politically as well as in civil society, social movements and so on, uh, of a sort that have not, you know, been respectable, have not been, you know, shown in public. And this is part of what I mean by a crisis of hegemony. It's as if the liberal order, or even the sort of respectable conservative order, is no longer able to hold, no longer able to bind the affect, hold the, the loyalty of large masses of peoples. 
So I think, you know, we find various forms of anti-immigrant, xenophobia, color racism in almost everywhere, really, in one form or another. And what I want to also want to suggest is that less powerful at this point, but nevertheless important, are left populist countercurrents for whom the rights of migrants, of people of color, and of workers of all color are, you know, the, the sort of central point of mobilization. And I would suggest that Demos in Spain, the Sanders campaign and affiliated offshoots in the United States, the left turn of the British Labor Party, I don't know what's going on. There must be something left of the Workers' Party in Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America. But, I mean, the thing is that there are, it's a time to think in terms of coalition. I think that this hybrid XX thing that I described actually could, in theory at least, open more possibility for alliance, cross-racial class alliance, in the sense that it should be very clear, well, if anyone figure out how to really explain this in a politically telling way, I am not, but it could be made clear to white working class people that, however radical or not radical, that their fate is absolutely tied to that of migrants, of people of color, and that there is no way to protect you from exploitation if you're not also focused on expropriation that you can't solve one of these problems without the other. They're all linked. So I think that's the, getting to your question about kind of what a better strategy. I mean, I think it's about taking the bull by the horn. The one thing that I know will not work is to try to de defend the status quo anti, the pre-Trump Obama order, which I have called progressive neoliberalism, which it, from my point of view is what, created the conditions for Trumpism and the alt-right. So I think it's about going forward and not going back. I don't think there's going to be much of a debate on this one. <laughs> but there's a few lessons I think we can draw that are very similar to what Nancy just said. I think one of the international lessons, but it's also very much domestic as well, is the bankruptcy of traditional social democracy. Social democracy, the old Labour Party in many places, not just the UK, did not have an answer for the, the crises of migration, the crises of capitalism that are emerging globally, the precarity that the working class is suffering in the global north and south. Second, I think we should be pay attention to the class bases of the right wing pushback as well. So in Brazil and elsewhere, it's a lot of people who had lost their privilege are the ones who are Trump supporters too, are at the forefront of the, white, of the right wing backlash. Sometimes they're pulling working class elements with them, but it's very much class-based. A third place to look for alliances is, I think we have to be very, very clear that this is also tied, as we see with the Kavanaugh hearings in the US, to attack on women's rights as well. And that, as one article I read recently suggested, there's certainly a defeat with Kavanaugh's confirmation, but that was true in the civil rights movement. There's a lot of defeats before you get to victory, but it is beginning to mobilize elements as well, and those elements are part of, of a, the type of alliance I think that Nancy's talking about. And finally, I think the one thing that I've talked about in some of my work is the need to 
pay attention to the young, at this point, somewhat fragile, very much decentralized organizing that black and other people of color are doing, particularly young black people, and realize a strong movement, an anti-racist movement in the past has won over white workers in places like Detroit, where there was no real racial love or harmony and united fight spirit, but militant black movements like in the Detroit Revolutionary Union movement were able to show their work, white working class allies, many who were from the Upper South, that even though we don't agree, on, for example, on racial lines or where we can each can we live or integrate our neighborhoods, we do have material interests together. I think as capitalism becomes more and more fraught for most people, those type of material interests once again provide a basis for possible alliances. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on racingcapitalism.com. That is racingcapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project. Thank you.